We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Lorita Coleman-Brown, Ph.D., is the author of When the Heart Speaks, Listen, Discovering Inner Wisdom, which details her remarkable spiritual journey as a heart transplant recipient. She is the Ace I. Carden Distinguished Professor Emerita of Psychology at Agnes Scott College. She has survived over 25 years with her transplanted heart and 15 years with a transplanted kidney as well. She has also endured a heart valve replacement and a pacemaker implant. In addition to her work as a psychologist and educator, uh, Dr. Brown is a spiritual director and a proponent of the contemplative wisdom of the renowned African-American mystic, Howard Thurman. She appears in the documentary, Backs Against the Wall, The Howard Thurman Story, which is available for streaming at pbs.org. You can learn more about her work online at peaceforhearts.com. That's P-E-A-C-E-F-O-R-H-E-A-R-T-S.com. Professor Brown has a special place in our hearts here at Encountering Silence in that she was the second guest we ever interviewed on the podcast. She appears in our episode number nine from February 2018. We consider her a dear friend, and so it is a delight to welcome her back. Welcome back, Larita. Thank you. I am just delighted to be able to spend some time with you all again. I, lo I love the podcast. Well, thank you. What we often invite returning guests to begin the conversation with is if, you know, it's been, what, almost two and a half years if in the last couple of years, if there has been a particular encounter with silence or moment of silence that you would want to share with us? Well, I think that uh, it's been quite a time and uh, I, I'm such a strong advocate of silence um, in the morning and silence in the evening as an intentional spiritual practice. But I have actually been um, more curious about having more opportunities uh, to take silence. And so now I have this practice of about, you know, five minutes before the hour to just pause and to reflect for a moment on what has the last hour been like and what would I like the next hour to be like. Um, and just to take a minute, I. I think that in doing work on Howard Thurman, as well as reading other contemplative uh, spirituality books and, and uh, articles, that I feel as if God is speaking to me all the time. And I, I, I should say God is speaking to all of us all the time. And that to pause and actually listen for that voice is such a gift. 
And uh, I've certainly had moments when I felt like I was being embraced by the presence of God. And uh, I find it to be, I think it's very much tied to the fact that I'm still here, that I'm still alive. Um, I, I, I gain great guidance from the silence. And I also have um, gained a sense of peace and, and some joy. So I think what's, what's been different for me is that I am uh, attempting to spend more time in silence. In your book, When the Heart Speaks, Listen, your heart says to you, if you learn about yourself from the inside, no one can ever define you from the outside. Can you talk about how just that interior meeting place of silence for you has helped you navigate when you're not silent and navigate the action that comes outside of silence? Yes, I think that for me, it, it, life has been a real struggle of um, being able to be myself in the world because people often come uh, to interactions um, based on what I look like. And of course, I'm a petite African-American woman with all, the, with all of their assumptions about what that might be like. And so the more that I've uh, turned to silence and uh, learned more about who I truly am as opposed to what's been projected on me, um, I have found that what my heart said was true, that no one outside of me can, um, can make judgments or can describe me in a particular way um, and that be true. And so, you know, as a, as a former social psychologist, we are often intrigued with the idea that identity and self-concept are often negotiated in the midst of an interaction, in the midst of a conversation. So somebody may come to me with an idea about who I am and express that, but then I come back with who I really am and it kind of scares them <laughs> because it may not be the same. But uh, I, I have certainly learned uh, to not internalize others, other people's perceptions of me, whether it's based on my race or my gender or, or my petite size, any of that. So it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been transformative and it's been uh, a way for me to uh, move, into, move in the world and to, to be able to advocate for myself, particularly in medical situations um, and to know that I'm coming from, um, and I'm living from this sense of connection to God all the time. Larita, what was your initial introduction to Howard Thurman? Well, I was actually completing my spiritual direction training at the Shalane Institute. And I was having a moment as I have had many times. And that is that I, diligently read all the, you know, reading, the required reading and the recommended reading, and uh, was very much um, impressed with uh, many of the mystics that I had read, but I just couldn't believe that in the history of the world that there weren't any African or African-American mystics. I mean, it's like, what, did they just not, did that just didn't happen to, you know, people of color or what, what was going on? So, 
I, I started asking around saying, and I remember uh, having a conversation with a pastoral counseling friend, a counselor friend of mine. And I said to him, I said, what, why is it? I just, we don't have any mystics. And so he said, you don't know about Howard Thurman? And I didn't know about Howard Thurman. And uh, I found that very odd first. Um, but then I decided to uh, explore him um, and to, to read some of his work. And I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this, I, I, I don't even understand how he could have been missed. And I was also um, then a bit upset that I had gone through this spiritual direction training program and had never heard of it. And so, you know, that began my, I think a call really to be an ad, uh, advocate, to be a, a person who was going to promote his wisdom. I mean, there's over 20 books and um, j just gr great wisdom for living in everyday life. And so, uh, and I think there are some parallels in our lives. And so uh, it was almost as if he affirmed or confirmed for me uh, that I was a contemplative and that it was okay. Larita, if you don't mind saying, what year was that when um, Howard Thurman's book was not amid your reading for that? The reason I ask is because I find that even today, his work and Black mystic work and Black contemplative work is still missing from the pile in spiritual direction programs everywhere. You're absolutely correct. It was, it was actually 2008 and He's not still on the required reading list. He's, you know, sort of recommended reading. And, um, and you know, he's not taught in all seminaries either. Uh, I continue to encounter people of all walks of life, highly educated, you know, maybe not educated, who have no idea who he is. And what's most disturbing to me is that you know, his, his ashes are, are uh, stored in an obelisk on the campus of Morehouse. What's so interesting too, because it's right outside the King Chapel, right? So it's like the spirituality is on the side. <laughs> and, and there are, I continue to run into Morehouse and Spelman students who have never heard of him. And, you know, I, I'm not about to begin to understand why that is the case, but I, I will say that the fact that he's missing from so many places has, has, has obviously made me wonder about uh, the origins of that. Is it that he's uh, more of a practical myst mystic or he's not a Catholic mystic or he didn't follow the monastic tradition or, you know, he's African-American, um, but, you know, for me, I think he probably wrote more books than Thomas Merton, for example, um, and certainly had a greater impact on American society in the long run, right? But I suspect it's, it may be due in part to this general bias of not valuing, you know, the, the work or the achievements of people of color. Um, and that's just part of that, you know, that general uh, pattern that we see, um, and that I think is 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 a part of what you know we're we're seeing in the world today, and as a discussion. Larita, 
I'll tell on myself here because when I reached out to you, what, just five or six days ago, wasn't very long ago, to see if you would be willing to uh, return to the podcast. And we were talking about Howard Thurman, and you just asked me, have you read Jesus and the Disinherited? And while I somewhat defensively said, well, I've read other of his books, but then I had to admit I hadn't, I hadn't read that one. So, and you, you know, said, well, why don't you read it between now and when we talk, which I, I took the challenge. And halfway through it, of course, I'm totally blown away by what, what uh, not only how um, prescient I think his theology was, but just, you know, how lyrical his voice is. He's truly, you know, he's a writer's writer. And so I, um, I, I put on Twitter, I said, if the American church were not biased against contemplation, the, the white American church were not biased against contemplation, Thomas Merton would be as well known as Billy Graham. And if the white American church weren't so racist, Howard Thurman would be at least as well known, if not more so than either of them. So, so I, I think we have to acknowledge that there is a certain amount of just, I guess, invisibility thanks to racism in the American church. I, I, I think, I mean, I agree there's a bias against contemplatives as well. So that I think there's that as, as a factor and probably in the Baptist tradition and then in, in other traditions because somebody's a Baptist, they don't read them. So all of that's at work. But it seems to me the big elephant in the room has got to be the question of race. Yes, and, and, it, and I, you know, as I was uh, talking uh, with you, I, I, that was one of my questions was, have you read Jesus in the dis and the Disinherited? And if... If not, why not? I, I guess I can take a little bit of pride and, you know, but that sinful thing of that I, I had heard of Herman Thurman and that I had read, like Carl said, I had read other things. I'd read essays. I'd read chapters. Uh, I had not read Jesus and Disinherited all the way through. And so when you told Carl, hey, read it. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it too. I need to read it all the way through. So I went back. And said, all right, I read those chapters. I don't care. I'm going to start from the beginning and go all the way through and see the full argument. And what I'm struck by is, as Carl said, great writer, great voice, great contemplative, all this stuff, great theology, great all the way through, but it's liberation theology. And I, in grad school, read liberation theology. And if I ask somebody, hey, what about liberation theology? Gutierrez is given to me, Theology of Liberation. A great man. I've read his work. I've met him. Um, I was honored to meet him. It's unbelievable. But Thurman is never mentioned as liberation theology, and he's doing it before Gutierrez. So I'm. it's very fascinating that Gutierrez, uh, Peruvian, is was offered to me, but not Howard Thurman. And so that really, I, I just don't know what to say about that. Or James Cone. Right. I mean, he's right. written quite a bit on liberation theology, right. although I will say uh, that it took a bit for me to do some uncovering to find James Cone actually acknowledging Howard Thurman, right? right. You know, he did, he, I did find something where he got a chance to meet him, but uh, I don't know, maybe it's male egos, maybe it's a little racism. It could be, you know, a number of things. Uh, but I, and I was just, you know, I, it was one of my questions, you know, for the group, because uh, 
I was on two years ago, we talked about Jesus and the disinherited, but I, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand why it is that people haven't read this book, because to me, it's a classic. It's just a classic. And uh, what, what's keeping them? So let me just backtrack for a second and, and mention a couple of things about Thurman. So let me read something from, uh, uh, you know, there, there's, he's just got great passages hidden in various things. And this one happens to be from uh, his book, Footprints of a Dream, the Story of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples. Now, you know, he was a strong, he strongly believed that God created everyone with the same sense of worth. So by virtue of being born, you were already worthy. You didn't have to earn it. Um, and he was always concerned about the fact that whatever religion you believed in, was it promoting the unity of all people? Because he, he found that to be uh, very important. But um, he writes um, about how he got into meditation. So we're talking Howard Thurman doing meditations in the early 1900s. And he says, the climate of our town, Daytona Beach, Florida, was better than most Southern towns because of the influence of the tourists who wintered there. Nevertheless, life became more and more suffocating because of the fear of being brutalized, beaten, or otherwise outraged. In my effort to keep this fear from corroding my life and making me seek relief in shiftlessness, I sought help from God. I found that the more I turned to prayer, to what I discovered in later years to be meditation, the more time I spent alone in the woods or on the beach, the freer became my own spirit and the more realistic became my ambition to get an education. So you, you can imagine a dark-skinned black boy growing up in the worst of Jim Crow South, although he says, you know, Daytona Beach is a little bit better because of the tourists coming from the North. But he, at any point in time, you know, could have been beaten or brutalized. And it's that kind of terror um, that he was trying to escape by beginning to meditate. And the great Thurman uh, biographer, Luther Smith Jr., Professor Luther Smith Jr., talks about how you know, he had this tree, this oak tree in his backyard that he would talk to. And he would, you know, basically meditate underneath this tree. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's amazing that you have a black man in the early 1900s meditating. And, and why is he meditating? He's finding that this is the only way that he can survive the lived environment that he's in. So I think that's that in and of itself is really important to know about him um, in terms of uh, you know, how, what was his response to the kind of climate that he was living in. He certainly was one who uh, did not support segregation in any kind of form. You know, he, he talks about this in his book, The Luminous Darkness, about what a poison um, segregation is. And he, he, and I just want to read this little section that's on the back. He says, uh, the luminous darkness is a commentary on what segregation does to the human soul. 
uh, first published in the 1960s during the struggle for integration of Blacks in the United States. Howard Thurman's insights continue to be ap applicable today. Today. <laughs> and uh, Thurman uh, basically bears the evil of segregation and points to the ground of hope, which can bring all men and women together. And so, but the point is, is that he says segregation is evil because it's against God and it's against life. You know, any kind of hate is against life. And I think what really bothered him was that, so you've got this Christian religion and, you know, it, that's supposed to be motivated by the love that Jesus, you know, uh, uh, showed so much in his lifetime, yet, you know, it's got these horrible issues of segregation. And, and you know, he, he really speaks of, um, he was always sort of troubled by it. Remember, he, he talks a bit about his first assignment in Oberlin, Ohio. He was pastor of the Mount Zion Baptist Church. And because he was such a great orator and a philosopher and just wrote these fabulous sermons, which by the way, you can access in the virtual listening room at Boston University um, from 1951 on. Uh, but so he's there uh, giving these uh, wonderful sermons and he begins to attract faculty and staff and students from Oberlin College, right, Oberlin. And, but none of them, none of the white people will ever join. And so he wants, he keeps asking this question, what, what is keeping people from joining this church if in fact you're finding the service to be enriching for you? What is that that is keeping you from, from doing that? So, you know, he, he's been pointing out this whole issue, you know, from the time he's a young boy, you know, until he dies, basically, trying to understand how do we move, how do we remove the barriers so that people can um, experience the oneness and the wholeness of being a human spirit with other human spirits. I'm curious too, because your comments here, I found when I was reading all the way through, everything you just said is there encapsulated in what I read in Jesus the Disinherited this week, when I read all the way through. The other thing that strikes me is not only is he ahead of the curve or, you know, the first with meditation, kind of uh, the progenitor of uh, the, the beginning, st the start of liberation theology, he talks about trauma. I mean, there's so much talk about trauma. He's talking about how the body and fear and hatred and all that gets in the body and how his silence and being called a child of God liberates you from that. And I'm just blown away that not only brilliant theologian and liberation thinker and a philosopher, but almost he's ahead of the curve in all the work we're doing now in trauma. I mean, all this embodied work that we talk about now, he, he's talking about it then too. And I just wonder, because we started off this conversation talking about your book and your embodiment, your journey with the heart transplant and everything. Do you think that Thurman, your journey with Thurman has an embodied component here that he's talking about prayer of the heart and that there's an uncovering of who you are? Because for me, 
embodiment and silence and prayer is all coming together here in this grief that I'm feeling this week and this anger I'm feeling this week. I'm wondering if you have anything, any connection there or, or am I off base about reading Thurman that way? Well, certainly uh, what, what, he t- what he says about um, the trauma is real. Um, but I think his, you know, he really wrote uh, Jesus and the Disinherited for all the people around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world who are living under oppressive conditions. And he basically uses Jesus as a model right. and says Jesus was also living under oppressive conditions, under Roman occupied, you know, in, in Roman occupied territory. And so how do you help people liberate themselves from the inside out, right? Right, So that they can function with dignity in a world that is telling them that they are nothing um, and that they are not worthy just because of how they were born. And of course, you know, he learned, the, the thing that's really fabulous about Thurman is that he utilizes things that he learned when he was like seven years old. So, you know, when he's seven, his father dies and his father's more intellectual than a churchgoer. And, you know, they don't want to, you know, have his funeral at the church because he was born out of Christ, right? <laughs> Living out of Christ, I should say die out of Christ. And so, you know, his grandmother sort of runs, you know, goes down there and says, look, this is ridiculous. Um, but uh, a, a visiting uh, preacher says, look, I'll do the funeral, right? And he takes the opportunity to condemn his father to death because he didn't go to church. And so Thurman's at seven, walking around, asking his mother, like, what kind of religion is this that, you know, you go to, you're, you're, you, know, you're, you go to hell because you didn't go to church? I mean, like, isn't it more about who, the, what kind of person you are? And this person didn't even know my father. So what is, what is that, right? So, but he also learns from his grandmother, who had been a slave. He also learned about how do you survive under the most horrendous conditions? And, you know, in so many different places, he tells the same story over and over again about how his grandmother uh, living uh, in slavery had an opportunity to have a visit. They had a visiting preacher once a year, slave preacher, who would come in and give a sermon and then would say at the end, now remember, you're not slaves and you're not the N-word. You are holy children of God. And, he's, and he ta- talks about in interviews about how she, you know, just gets this light in her eyes and she stands up straight and she talks about, you know, knowing that she's a holy children, a child of God. So you all can do whatever you want to me or pretend to do it or whatever, but I'm holding on to this. And I think that not only did that help him to inoculate himself, from all the negativity he was gonna get because he was this black boy um, in, in the South, growing up in the South. But he also argues in Jesus and the Disinherited that it is um, a way to become centered if in fact that's your primary identity, right? So if your primary identity is as a holy child of God, it really holds you. Now, how that relates to my life is that I went to Catholic school for, you know, first through eighth grade, and the nuns told us all the time we were God's children. And I think that helped me, along with the discipline that you get from going to Catholic school. But um, 
I, I think that I always walked around with this sense of, well, I'm, you know, it's like a holy child of God that, and so nobody can actually do, you know, they can't with words or whatever their actions are, can really prevent you from doing whatever you're called to do. And for me, um, I realized, you know, early on, particularly in my career that if someone threw up a wall because it was, you know, they were being racist or whatever, maybe they, it's sexist, who knows. I knew to go to spirit about what to do. And so that, so really what he's talking about is a spiritual identity. And I, I don't think that we talk a lot about that, but in my work that I did, you know, as a college professor, and I, I was very much interested in destigmatizing identities as well as identity and self-concept, ethnic identities, all those kinds of things. Back, way back in the early 1900s, uh, William James is writing about the spiritual self. It's like, you know, in the self, you've got the I, the me, and then you've got this spiritual self. And so if in fact you are, you know, have this center of, you know, God created me and I'm a holy child of God, that really can help to stabilize as, as Thurman would call it, self-estimate, but it would modern day it would be self-esteem. In addition to that, um, speaking of him being way ahead of the curve, he writes about, in the creative encounter, he writes about how important it is to have an encounter with God, which of course you have to basically <clears throat> quiet yourself down or be outside or whatever. But he says, Every time you have an encounter with God, it should change you a little bit. So, you know, it's working not only on, um, you know, in terms of a spiritual way, but it's really beginning to chisel away at that ego that you were given and all those stories that you were told about who you are. And in this book, he's really talking a, a little bit about neural theology. This is in the 50s. Okay, long before people even, long before we even had a word for it, right? He's saying, and I think this should change the way your brain operates. And of course, then it should change your behavior. So I uh, wrote an essay in a book called Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. It's called um, Dissecting Racism, Healing Minds and Cultivating Spirits. I basically argued, because I tried every psychological, sociological theory I could come up with to help me understand racism. You know, and my first encounter was as a six-year-old. You know, I had this friend who was white and, you know, we were playmates. And, you know, I went to her house, she came to my house. And then, you know, she invited me over to stay overnight. But when it was came time for her to come over to my house to stay overnight, it was like, oh, no. And my parents just couldn't seem to explain to me why that was, what happened? What's the problem? So my idea was that it, it's hard to explain this in a number, of, with a number of socio-psychological theories, but that I think the answer is in cultivating a spiritual self, that you begin to let go of this self that either you constructed or as an adaptation to the environment that you grew up in or you, um, or the, the self that got constructed and given to you by your family or the environment, 
or the social media or all of that. And you begin to live from a different identity because we live from our identities. You know, we're, we're walking around with a working self-concept all the time and that's who we think we are. And we live from that. Uh, but I think that when we discover that we have perhaps maybe another self or another identity, that in investigating that, we begin to learn how to live from that. And in living from that, you begin to realize that if you're a holy child of God, that means everybody else is too. And you have to begin to act accordingly. You, you know, part of what I loved about Jesus and the disinherited was how Thurman really brings home the resonance between Jesus's experience as a Jew in Roman occupied Israel with the experience of being an African-American in racist America. And even to the extent of, and I don't know if he said it this explicitly, but this is really the sense that I got was that if you really want to understand who Jesus was, look at the experience, look at the African-American experience in America and maybe even vice versa. And listening to you, Lorita, I'm, I'm thinking about, and of course, I'm sitting here as, as, a, as a white male in America, which means I'm, I'm the beneficiary of white privilege. And as a follower of Christ, I see that that is something that, that has to be dismantled on a personal level, but also on a systemic level. And so I'm thinking about all of the language in Christianity about dying to self, you know, the person who saves his life will lose it, that kind of thing. And it seems to me that, that for, for the white Christian, that language might be very important in, in our commitment to dismantle racism and to step out of our privilege. But I'm curious about how that language works for the black indigenous latina people of color community communities and whether that language could actually be counterproductive i mean i'm thinking about in jesus and the disinherited where um thurman talked about his grandmother she never wanted to read saint paul because of the language about slaves obey your masters and she was like i think when i get to heaven god will forgive me if i didn't read those passages <laughs> you know so, so I'm curious just how this, this language of kind of egoic surrender, how that fits or doesn't fit in this moment we find ourselves confronting racism in America today. Well, there's many answers to your question, Carl. Uh, I think that he doesn't necessarily, and I don't think he would call it egoistic surrender, but I think what he's suggesting first, we have to just deal with Paul. You know, he's got just a whole commentary on Paul and why Paul would have a different perspective than Jesus might have. So, you know, Paul was a Roman citizen, despite yeah. the fact that he was also you know, Jewish. And, you know, so he had privilege. And because he had privilege, his perspective, his, his view was very different than it would have been if he were like Jesus who if Jesus got kicked in the ditch, he had no protection from the state. He just was in there. And I mean, that's part of, that's the, part of the, you know, the undertone is part of the problem here is that um, disinherited people, dispossessed people have no protection from the state. 
So if, you know, you get beat up by the police, as we have seen here, uh, murdered by the police, you know, it, no, nothing happens. Um, and that is part of the problem. Um, but I think one of the things he would probably say is that, you know, he was not a advocate of racial reconciliation because it was the right thing to do. He said, you cannot have union with God without it. So you're gonna have to figure out some kind of way that you can transcend whatever egoistic issues that you have, because you are not gonna be able to have that union with God if you don't deal with it. Because yeah. God created, you know, it's God's creation as a oneness, not as, okay, there, there's those people over here and these other people over here kind of thing. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Uh, the other thing, and this is something that I talk about in this essay, is that I think what's not, you know, there's, a, there's so much that has that, that's, as you said, invisible or, or doesn't get talked about. So here's sort of the basic problem. Everything has meaning. You know, all identities have meaning, et cetera. So one of the problems with um, white and black is that they're totally constructed. Typically, if you have an ethnic or a cultural identity, it is embedded in a culture, in language, in food, in music, in holidays, in a whole array of things. But white and black is really um, sociopolitical identities. So when I used to ask my students in class, well, what does it mean to be white? They had nothing. They, there was, they couldn't put anything on the paper. So part of it is that I'm white because I'm not black. And this in part stems from the fact that, you know, many years ago when this, this country was forming, there were lots of white people now who were not white, okay? Really the only white people were the French and the English, but Greeks weren't white, Jews weren't white, um, Polish weren't white, Irish weren't white. So this idea of what of white is just kind of made up and it's, but, but, it's made up because, you know, at, at, particularly with, with the black migration to the North, uh, but, or to be able to different, differentiate enslaved people from those that were not, you had to have these clear distinctions. And, and this idea that being white meant that I have to be better than a black person. I mean, even poor white people would say, well, at least I'm better than the N-word. So that's embedded in it. And that's where things get prob become problematic. So, and I've had so many encounters like this where, for example, I might show up and I make people feel uncomfortable because I'm not fitting the traditional stereotype of what they would expect for a black person to be looking like or talking like. 
So if in fact, what you've embedded is uh, being white means I have to be a better, better than a black person, then if a very intelligent, competent black person shows up, it just, it's like threatening the reality, you know, because identity is always connected to reality. So like Barack Obama, for example. Yes, yes, yes. And eight years of, of Barack Obama, no less, right? So if we didn't have this meaning of whiteness, if it were just a label, that would be fine. But the fact that it that you know that that being white means you have to be better than a black person, really sort of begins to account for all the things that have happened that have nothing to do with police brutality, but just not wanting people to live up to their full potential and getting upset if you are. So you know, I, it was sort of like you know, I was damned if I do, damned if I don't. If I'm not, you know, a successful, competent person then I'm a welfare queen living off the, off the state, right? So no matter which way I go, I was gonna get some flack. But I've been intrigued with this idea that whenever I'm out traveling or whatever, and I, ru and I run into someone who has highly identified with being white. See, I have gradations, right? But highly identified with being white. I can always tell because they, they start to feel uncomfortable. They wanna know, oh, what, you know, people assume always, you ask somebody, well, uh, what grade did you teach, you know, in, in school, right? Because I, I will, I'll be out, like say at a physical therapy appointment or something. And, you know, there's, there might be a white man there and uh, he says, you sound like a school teacher. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> I said, well, what grade do you think I taught? <laughs> so, you know, and never college professor, never college professor, right? Because that would be just too much. I might get high school and I might, you know, definitely middle school, but not college professor because I violate the norm. I, I violate the meaning of whiteness. That means oh, she might be smarter than me and she might have higher social status. So that's what we have got to begin to deconstruct. And unfortunately, we tend to attach value to differences. It's not that two things are different, it's that we tend to make one better than the other. You know, I think until we start to, to actually talk about that and talk about, you know, to what degree. Now I have certainly met, as I, and I could put it nicely like this, I've certainly met human spirits who appear to be white and I can tell they've done some of their work and not just pretend, but just really done the work, I can tell. But I can also tell when I've encountered someone who has not done the work and is feeling uncomfortable. Um, and to me, that's the key word. People don't wanna feel uncomfortable. I, and I think anytime that you are going to have to deal with something serious, you're gonna to have to be uncomfortable and sit with the uncomfortableness. Um, I mean, it will pass as you begin to do work on understanding where did you learn about being white? Who told you? And what did they tell you? And, you know, was, were these issues, um, how were they presented to you? Because, um, you know, in a lot of the work out there, and my, as I mentioned, my favorite uh, book uh, is uh, Waking Up White and Finding Myself in a Story of Race by Debbie Irving. Very accessible uh, book. You know, she basically uh, sort of becomes awakened to her whiteness, which of course you can, you know, you can walk around not thinking that you're white, 
because if you're surrounded by all white people, you don't have to think about it. And I mean, that's part of the privilege is that you don't have to think about it. And it's so funny because, you know, I've had experiences of leaving this society and going to someplace like Jamaica where I'm not in the minority. And it feels different to not be in the minority. You know, it's almost as if I'm continuous as opposed to, you know, the background or the foreground or whatever. And so I, I, I can understand how you could be walking around and not ever have to think about what it means or anything because everybody looks like you and it's fine. Yeah, Larita, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, My Grandmother's Hands by Rizma Minicum. I'm not sure how to say his name, but it's a lot about that, the importance of that bodily work. It's about racialized trauma and the pathways to mending our hearts and bodies. It's been a really, it's a really, really important read, I believe, for me and for other white people in particular. But yeah, so much lives in our bodies and so much, you know, in, in like a just reference to the Black Christ, I just finished that by Kelly Brown Douglas. And I was reading Diotis Roberts before that. And just uh, our God images, right? In Christianity, there's a lot of spiritual poison here too. Our God images um, are doused, are whitewashed, are disgustingly whitewashed. And that's been hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, I just am thinking about these kinds of things. Not, not quite sure where I'm going with this, but yeah, Diotis Roberts talks about, talks about the importance of a black Christ and Carl, kind of what to, what you were saying earlier, this this elevation of the image of God, of these kinds of God images as, as Black, I think is really important for white people too. I think it really serves us well. I agree, Cassidy. I, I want to say that um, for me, one of the striking things, I don't even remember when this happened, but I remember the day where I saw an icon for the first time it was pictures of saints and uh, the person drew had, the artist had created St. Augustine and he's from Africa. So they, the artist made look like somebody who came from that area of that part of Africa. And I was striking because it was the first time in my life. I was like, wait, Augustine was white, not white. What? And I remember that it's a long time ago. And then right after that, I started to see icons of, of, of God, of Mary, et cetera, in various, whether African, Asian, Native, uh, different. And it's striking. I, I agree. I think there's some work for white people to see those images. I, it was striking. I was young. I, f I forget. I was like in high school, I think, when, when these were confronting. But I'm recalling now about how I had to confront like, wait, what? Like, what is that? And it's kind of like what Lorita was saying. Like, I didn't notice my privilege. That was the noticing of like, wait a minute, wait, isn't God look like me kind of thing? Or don't the saints look like me? That kind of thing. I was trying to remember who it was we were speaking with. And I think it was Therese Taylor Stinson. And we were talking about the desert mothers and fathers that, they were all African or many of them were, you know, from Egypt right. or from further up the Nile. And, you know, and so if we're going to talk about contemplative Christianity, then I think we need to acknowledge that contemplative Christianity is a gift to the world from Africa because that's where it began. 
but it's like that just gets that little detail gets erased at least in i think white readings of the desert mothers and fathers so yeah there's there's a lot of work of just trying to tell the truth about the past yeah that, that needs to be done Right. And maybe even having Howard Thurman be a required reading in our spiritual direction programs. How about that idea? <laughs> um, speaking of, as Howard Thurman says in Jesus and the Disinherited, it cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful and against the weak and oppressed. This despite the gospel. And I've always got stuck on this despite the gospel which is so clearly, yeah, what, what American Christianity has become is not the gospel. <laughs> yes. And that's why I think the book is so powerful. I mean, I was having issues, right? And I mean, I mean let's just start with, you know, blue-eyed Jesus. I mean, you know, and you know that can't be true. I mean, you know, not coming from the Middle East, right? So, but, but I think that Somewhere along the line, and I'm not exactly sure where it was, but, you know, Jesus, Jesus, as he says, was not trying to start a religion. I think that Jesus was really just trying to awaken, you know, some people. And that some, but somewhere along the line, particularly, and I don't even know if it's just American spiritual, you know, Christianity. I mean, you look at, you know, England and all these other places, it's that same idea that somehow or other, that it's okay to look at other people, other, other uh, parts of God's creation and deem it either unworthy or not human. You know, because Thurman's saying, one, how can you, you know, have slavery? How can you have slavery, period, right? Who, how can you justify that? Even though obviously, you know, you've got, you know, those sections in the Bible that say slaves obey your masters, right? So. Um, from from those times, but he would say that that was not the message of Jesus. And I also think that, uh, as as he says in the beginning, um, why would people want to? Why would you? Why would people want to join a religion like this? You know, I mean, the whole you know Im imperialism that goes along with the the sort of as he says missionary zeal. Like, you know, so you're going to come in and you're going to take over the country and you want me to also adopt the religion that motivates you to come in and take over the country, right? So he, he clearly says that somewhere along the line, the message, the true message of Jesus um, was distorted. And, you know, I think that uh, he was sort of carrying around these ideas because he wrote an essay in 1935 called Good News for the Underprivileged. And he was beginning to de develop these ideas that would later turn into the book. But just after he published that essay, he went to India uh, or, you know, to uh, what is now Miramar, I think. And they, tr you know, he and his wife and uh, Edward and Fanola Carroll traveled for six months. Um, and um, he did have two major, I think, incidents on that trip. One of them was at a law school where this lawyer just called him out and said, why are you over here representing Christianity? I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're just um, an insult, right, to Black people all over the world. Um, and, uh, you know, he says, what kind of religion is this where you can't sit with other people, you know, next to them? And, you know, they're stopping services to go out and lynch somebody and come back. And like, so, and he basically <laughs> tells the guy, 
um, your critique is probably not as far as mine. <laughs> so, so, but he, you know, he, I think he had to really sort of sit with, and, and that's sort of where this idea of the backs against the wall, it's like, what, what does this offer people with their backs against the wall? Like, why would they want to join this religion? And then I think the, the second conversation was with Gandhi. You know, he met, he met with Gandhi um, and, you know, there's a book called uh, Visions of a New World, Howard Thurman's Pilgrimage to uh, India uh, that is out. And it's just about sort of how did it happen and um, what, what they talked about. Somebody was smart enough to take notes, which is amazing. Um, but, um, you know, Gandhi basically says, I don't even know why you all are Christian either. Why do you should have been a Muslim? Because at least that's the only one religion in which if you go in, both of you are equal, master and slave, whatever. So, um, you know, it was an extraordinary conversation, but I think Thurman came away from that knowing and, and you know, obviously having a kind of a mystical experience at Khyber Pass, feeling like he was connected to this caravan going into Afghanistan that he had to come back and you know, start this first intentional interracial church, um, the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples. So uh, again, I think his challenge always has been, when is religion, American religion, American Christianity going to promote the unity of all people regardless of religious background or faith tradition? Um, and when are they gonna begin to remove these barriers? that um, keep different parts of God's holy creation apart. Because if that's what you're doing, that's not about God. And in his autobiography, he's very clear about where the church should stand when he writes, it was my conviction and determination that the church would be a resource for activists. To me, it was important that the individual who is in the thick of the struggle for social change would be able to find renewal and fresh courage in spiritual resources of the church. There must be a provided place, a moment when a person could declare, I choose. Yes. Well, see, his, his brand of mysticism was um, kind of stemmed out of that, that line of Quaker mysticism, but he was sort of doing it even before he you know, uh, crossed paths with the Quakers. But it's, you know, you, you, it, it's lovely to have visions. It's lovely to be sitting in the presence of God, but that's not enough it should encourage you to go out there and do something to help restore God's beloved creation. And if you're, you know, I, I always call Quakers my boots on the ground mystics, right? It's like, okay, you know, let's be quiet, but then let the, the, the contemplation in action, in action. Now, I will say this, he was not an advocate of violence. He's very much a pacifist. And I think he, along with, uh, Gandhi and um, you know a host of other people felt like the love ethic was really you know the most important force in the world that you can't really wipe out hate with more hate that you know you've got to be able to rise above that you know and help that hateful person um, understand that they're a holy child of God which is a real challenge because I mean I know lots of people. I'll tell them, you know, you, we should pray for our, our, our leaders and their life, seriously. So, but I mean, what did Jesus say? You know, love, you know, love your enemy, enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? You, you know, you have to, you know, that's sort of part of, part of that. But he also says um, in uh, Footprints of a Dream, 
similar to what you read, uh, Cassidy, the movement of the spirit of God in the hearts of men and women often caused them to act against the spirit of their times or causes them to anticipate a spirit which is yet in the making. In a moment of dedication, they are given wisdom and courage to dare a deed that challenges and to kindle a hope that inspires. So he certainly was not one that uh, backed away from confrontation, but he believed that it was very important. Um, and I, we, you saw this adapted in the civil rights movement training that you needed to go center down, center in, before you then went out to confront violent, you know, violence um, of people. But that uh, it is important to embed yourself in the spirit so that you can hear what are you being called to do um, in all of this. And I think that that's really an important um, notion that, and I call it sacred activism, where you invite the spirit in for the guidance about where to go, when to go, what to say. I think it's Bernard Alvarez who says, um, a movement without a spiritual base is just an angry mob. And so, for me, it's really important. And you see that, saw that in the movie Selma where King is walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He stops, kneels down and gets up and turns everybody around because that was not the right day. You know, you see this in the movie Harriet, Harriet Tubman, you know, long before that is utilizing that pause and listen for how to be able to liberate people. And I think that's probably if for some people the missing part, and which is, and maybe perhaps why some people, some activists get so exhausted. And I and, and I know that because I've been sitting with them in spiritual direction this week. I feel exhausted. Um, that you know you've got to be able to center down and uh, feel that sense of renewal from the spirit. And I think it's really important to learn to listen. You know. So my position. Uh, coming out of uh, readings of Thurman and my own life is that it, it, it is so important to, um, well, let me just backtrack and say, you know, that line, um, many are called and few are chosen. I think it's all are called, few choose to listen. And that we're all called to do something to help restore God's beloved creation. And maybe it's not, you know, this particular moment, or maybe it's something environmental, or maybe it's something else. But I think it's real important to know that every single person, I think, has to play a role. And that, you know, it's important to listen for what is your role um, in all of this? Well, I feel like that's the question. Just let that question circulate. What is your role? That's it. What else am I supposed to say to that? I better listen and figure it out or listen for it. or Right, because you don't have to figure it out. Right, you, listen, you have to hear it. Right, right. You have to hear it. You know, not every person in the civil rights movement was on the street. Some people were taking care of children. Some people were making food. Some people were putting people up. So everybody has a role, but it's not the same role. I don't need to be out on the street. I'm a transplant recipient. I have to take medications every day. But, you know, I can do this or I can, you know, do something else. Well, you're doing spiritual direction. You're helping those who are. Right. And they need you. 
as you probably felt this week. Like you said, you're exhausted. I, I did. I, I, you know, I had one person who was arrested and, you know, she was talking about, and it was so funny when, as soon as we sat down for some silence, you know, she just started Googling, you know, because I just knew, you know, how traumatizing it was. And this was a white woman who said that they gave her an opportunity to leave, but they were actually arresting black and brown people. But, you know, they said, look, you can go if you'd like. And she said, I'm, no, I'm going to jail. So, you know, it's, we, we, have, we have a lot of work to do, but you know, as I used to tell my students, we're, we're always living history. I mean, it's, you know, I've seen, you know, the, the colored and white fountains, right? Because I grew up in that era where, you know, my father had to sit us down in California because we were going to Arkansas and have the talk about things are going to look very different uh, because I wasn't, obviously exposed to that level of segregation living in California. Not to say that it wasn't there, but we didn't have the, you know, the, the uh, separate accommodations. But when we went to Arkansas, he wanted to make sure we understood that there are certain things we would not be able to do because it was Arkansas. So I come from there to where we are now, seeing, you know, that sort of expanse, but knowing that although the symptoms have sort of changed a bit, um, the root problem has not. I mean, I'm here in Georgia, you know, with, you know, with the killing of the, you know, of Ahmaud Arbery, and that's just good old, you know, lynching kind of stuff. So it's just a different way in which it was done. But um, so, so, you know, in some ways you, you've seen major change, obviously, you know, uh, you can stay, you know, wherever you want. You can go to basically any restaurant or those kinds of things. I've seen that change over my lifetime. But, um, you know, we still have issues. And for me, I think, again, this is a spiritual issue. I think we are in, I think, I, think, I call them both pandemics, <laughs> pandemic number one and pandemic number two, but that they're both, it's almost as if the species needed a correction because we were spinning out of control. And I mean, anytime uh, a, a civilization um, or a species get to the point of where they're turning away people who are trying to escape violence in their own countries and letting them drown in the ocean, you know, or blocking them from, you know, coming in or whatever way you want to call it, you know, closing one border, but the other one's open or whatever, you, you know, that's, that's just against, all of what Jesus taught, all of what God is about, if you believe in God, it's just not okay. And so, you know, sometimes we have to be, and I know this from my own personal experience, you have to be brought to your knees. You know, you have to be brought to a point of where it's either, you know, you're going to be able to um, change the way that you are. I certainly had to change after having a heart transplant. I mean, if I didn't get that, right, and I didn't quite get it, because I had to get slapped down a few more times before I really knew that I was being called to do something else than, you know, to be a self-important professor. So, you know, I think it's real important for us to be asking. You know, I said this was a holy interruption. Uh, I described the pandemic as a holy interruption. I, and so now we're getting interrupted again. But I mean, if you look at the demonstrations all over the world, 
Um, I think it's a it's a it's a call to all people that we need, you know, we cannot continue to live like this. And just think about how much we've lost in terms of potential. Um, Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote the, um, the beautiful book um, In Search of Other Sons, I, I'm not saying that title right, but she, she gave a lecture here at some point where she talked about how the black migration led to the development of, of many people that would not have happened. So people like Prince or Michael Jackson, you just, you wouldn't have those if their parents had stayed in the South. And it was just really quite striking um, that there has been this, and I, I, you know, I've been trying to understand, I can understand separation, but I don't understand why you would not want a group of people to be all that they can be, because it seems like to me that would just contribute more and more to the society and to the world. Um, and, 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 you know, not to try to limit that in some kind of way. So, but I do believe that probably our answers are in the silence for many. It may be in some other forms of that in some kind of way, some other contemplative forms, as, um, you know, Barbara Holmes speaks in Joy Unspeakable. Um, but there, I think there is something about, as Thurman says, to be connected to the eternal that, you know, helps us to step around some of the more egregious forms of, um, of, of racism. Uh, but for others, they don't have that opportunity. And I'm going to continue to, you know, to do work because I have an 18 year old nephew who's only had his driver's license for a year and has been stopped five times by the police. Ugh. My mind is just hitting here about my almost 18 year old son who's been driven and has not been stopped once. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, it's so funny too because one of the times he was stopped, he was on his own street walking with two other kids with hoodies on. It's just ridiculous, ridiculous right? So, but, but, you know, so, so that's part of it, right? Is that, you know, this creation of this demonization of young black males or, you know, black males, I guess once they turn 14, 15, you know, they then become not cute, but dangerous. And, uh, and that's the part. And, you know, it's a cognitive kind of process. I, I know that uh, we uh, have, uh, I was, I've been talking to people about uh, where does that begin? And, um, you know, people begin to show their kids uh, very early on that certain people are dangerous just by how they either grab them or they hold them tight when someone different or someone black or whatever walks walks in front of them, et cetera. So you, you, know, you start to send those cues early on. Um, and uh, you know, we've just got a lot of work to do. I, I have a question for you, Larita. Mm -hmm. If someone has read your book and read Jesus and the Disinherited, where would you recommend they go next? whether if they're staying in Thurman, um, Luminous Darkness maybe, or his autobiography? There's so many choices. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The creative encounter sounds amazing. Yeah, creative yeah, it's encounter. A little, it's a little heady. So like if, you're, if you would really love to have something to read before you sit, you know, um, to reflect on, certainly Meditations of the Heart and deep, Deepest the Hunger, 
And uh, we should probably have a we should probably have a shout out here, Larita, for Howard Thurman's voice. You can go to uh, the the uh, Howard and Sue Bailey Thurman collection at Boston University. There's a catalog of his sermons and lectures from 1951 on. It's just such a treasure trove, and I thank. Walter Fluker and Kai Issa Jackson and all the people that worked on the Howard Thurman Papers Project and getting that project done. Uh, I will say that, uh, you know, he used to say that he would read uh, The Inward Journey to cheer himself up because he knew that he wasn't the sole author. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, there's so much. I mean, if you want to read about his ideas about the, the evil of uh, segregation and, and separating of people, certainly luminous darkness. There's, there's also a collection of his um, essays and writing in um, A Strange Freedom that is edited by Walter Fluker, but there's a lot. Um, and uh, his autobiography is lovely. I mean, it sort of gives you an overview, but you know, these collections of meditations that he wrote because he was, he, was, he was actually a strong advocate of the power of silence. He found, for example, when he was uh, conducting worship service that uh, he would leave places for silence you know, in the service. But then some people wanted more silence. So he started having a um, time before the service. And when he instituted that, requests for pastoral care went down because he, he said they were somehow or other found the illumination in the quiet. So, and he had people that he would sit with um, in other parts of the country, meet them in the silence, you know, ever so often. Uh, so I think he, he definitely, it was like a well that he went, kept going back to, you know, just to, to be renewed. Uh, but I, but I, I think um, later in his life, he was a bit disappointed. He really wanted to have a, center at Boston University when he was there as Dean of the Marsh Chapel, a center, a place where people from all faith traditions could come and, you know, worship, have a meditation room downstairs and, you know, just all of that. And they weren't having it in the 60s. They were a Protestant institution and they were kind of like, you know what, uh, no. And so I think uh, he left but a bit of disappointment because this idea of bringing people together, you know, and bringing people in from the community was something that was always important to his heart. And um, because he just, you know, he felt like the barriers are just artificial. Um, and I will say that there is a segment in, uh, there's, a, there's a sermon on corporate worship from 1951 where he, talks about sitting with in a Quaker meeting where um, he's uh, says, I'm sitting, you know, listening to my own noise. And at some point he says, I can't even tell you when I joined all the other human spirits in the room. So he knew that there was that ability to have that transcendent experience and to know that he was like everyone else, regardless of what anybody else said. Lorita, thank you. Thank you for, um not only for sharing Howard Thurman's voice, but your own voice. We are in Cal.
encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is KevinMichaelJohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. Thank you.